Managing your 401k is hard. Bloom isn't. See what you could be doing to make your 401k better by getting a free analysis at bloom401k.com slash fool. That's bloom with three O's, 401k.com slash fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hi, Allison. And we also have Jason Moser. Hey, hey. It's time to open up the mailbag and answer your questions. This time we'll have a bit of help. Thanks to Jason. We're going to tackle questions like what's the first step to start investing, investing in dividend stocks, where to roll over your 401k, and getting kids started investing. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Yes, Jason Moser is back, and he's helping us tackle a ton of questions. So, let's just get into it, huh? Let's do that. All right, the first question comes to us from Armando. I just became a member and want to start investing. I have some savings and would like to start with one stock. What is my first step? I like this. Like, I mean, having kids at home, it's not like I'm tackling a million questions there. So let's come on to the studio and tackle some more questions. Oh, I'm very, please. very happy. I'm just we kidding. Are, in all honesty, we are paying you. Anybody that so ever well. ever has a question for me regarding investing or anything really, I'm always happy to offer my two cents. Not saying I'm right, but hey. Let's at least talk. When we, and um, we love having you on the show. <laughs> well, it's so here's how Jason feels. Always you a pleasure to be start. here. Okay. Um, I, I mean, this is a good question, Armando. So I, I have to ask at least the question of do you have a brokerage account yet or not? My assumption is that you do. But in case you don't, that really is the first step. And opening a brokerage account is as easy as opening an account at your bank. You can do it online. Um, it's it's essentially like opening a bank account. You're just going to go to a brokerage of your choice, and that's probably the most difficult part of it all is just picking one. Uh, lots of great names out there, though, so you can't go wrong. You open that brokerage account, and then you deposit your money in there, and then you are now an investor, and you can really start making all of this happen. Now, you mentioned you are a member. I'm going to approach this as if you are a stock advisor member. Uh, and this is really, I think, where Stock Advisor shines, particularly for uh, the, the beginning investor, because we do uh, offer so many options and really sort of a clear path to get started. Uh, but once you have the, the brokerage open, it's a matter of figuring out which stock you want to buy. I think we make it easy in the sense that we have our concept of starter stocks. And if you go to the, the Stock Advisor website, you will see that area on the recommendations page. Uh, they are in Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers, by the way. Uh, we think they are just ideal holdings for any foolish investor. Uh, we think that if you're going to own individual stocks, you should try to own at least 15. And so these starter stocks are, are sort of uh, recommended in the context of, of that idea. And, and I think also, if you look beyond starter stocks, we also have Best Buys Now every month. And that's a list of the stocks that we think are the best opportunities right there at that point in time, that month. So, if you happen to see a Best Buy now that is also a starter stock, or the other way around, then that could be a great signal that maybe there's a great opportunity there. But it is also a little bit about you, right? David Gardner uh, likes to talk about making your portfolio sort of, of, of how you view the world. And I think that's a good way to look at things. So, part of it is sort of determining what is most important to you as a person, as an investor. 
Um, and, and you can go from there. But from the context of the service, that's the easiest way to get started. Yeah, and most of the Motley Fool services have some variation of what you just described. You know, if you're new to the service, here's where you should start, and these are some initial investment ideas. Yep. Yeah, and I would add, Armando, if you're worried about picking the right or wrong brokerage, the good thing is it's not a marriage. Like you can easily divorce yourself or open <laughs> yeah. up an account at another brokerage. We have accounts uh, accounts open at at least three different brokerages. Yeah. Um, so it's one, not that big of a deal. One other thing I will say for folks who are just looking at, at starting investing, if you feel like making that leap to an individual stock is still a little bit scary, you can always make purchasing shares of the S&P 500 index fund your first first purchase. Right. So really you're not buying just one stock, you're buying like 500, right? In in the form of that uh, you know, exchange traded fund that ETF uh, that follows the S&P 500 uh, index. Yep. All right, the next question comes to us from Twitter and it comes from uh, either Megan or Megan and she writes if you left your job and needed to move your 401k, where would you roll it? Well, this is a good follow-up question to the yeah. previous one because this is a very good one. You you can roll it to a brokerage or you could roll it to the 401k or 403b at your new employer. Generally speaking, that's not the best move because most 401ks and 403bs have embedded costs and fewer investment choices. But if you are going to a place that has a great plan, you can roll it over there, especially at some plans like the federal government's TSP plan. It's so big that it has investment options with tremendously low costs. That's a possibility. Otherwise, transfer it to a discount broker to an IRA. And I would say start with what kind of investor you want to be. So if you want to just invest in mutual funds, then you choose a broker that has a good selection of mutual funds with no transaction fees. If you just want index funds, obviously the choice there is probably Vanguard. If you're going to be an active trader, then you would focus on someone that offers lower commissions. If you're going to be an options trader, which you can do with some IRAs, um, covered calls, then you want to go with a broker that has that as an option and allows you to do it. Now, one place to look to choose is the Motley Fool has a broker center, so you can go there and see which brokers are there and the different things that are offered. But also, you can just Google like best brokers 2017, 2018, and many publications and organizations will rank brokers and say, if you are this type of investor, mm. go here. If you're this type of investor, go there. You're like NerdWallet. Yeah, NerdWallet, JD, Power, all kinds of folks. The one thing I'll just say, though, is make sure that whenever you transfer money between retirement accounts, try to get it as a trustee-to-trustee transfer, so one organization to the other. You want to avoid receiving a check. If you do get a check in the mail, you've got to get it into another retirement account pretty quickly. I remember I was so terrified the first time I did the rollover and I had the check and I was just like, wait, no, 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 I don't want this. I don't want this. I know. I I could not get it out of my house fast enough. I was so terrified. And and looking back now, it was not that much money because I was so young. (laughs) Right. But it was the most I'd ever seen. Yeah, because if you don't get it in there quickly enough, it's considered distribution. You'll pay taxes and penalties. And on top of that, they may have, when they sent you the check, withheld some money and sent it to the government, you have to make up that difference, which you get back when you file your tax return. So, if that check is for less than what you had in your 401k, call them and make sure that you understand why they withheld that money. Ah, taxes. Ah, taxes. Did everybody get their taxes won this year? Uh, yes. To a Didn't have to file degree. for any extensions? No, I did do the extension, uh, I have to say. For the second, maybe well, third time in my life, I did well, an extension. Hey, you know, at least you did that. I did. At least I did right. that much. <laughs> All right. Next question comes to us from Tim. Tim writes, 
Is it time to invest in Facebook? Bah, bah, bah. Well, Tim, <laughs> I probably have to hold my nose here and say yes. And, and I say hold my nose because... Honestly, I'm not a big fan of Facebook. The company, the platforms, I it just it's not my thing. It's not for me. Which um, I would say you're kind of an outlier here at the Fool. I, Many analysts I are pro probably, Facebook. I probably am uh, well pro Facebook from the user perspective or from the investor perspective. perspective. Yeah, I mean, I it's it's a good it's a good business. It's one that you need to own. It's it's one where I'm not the biggest fan of it. I'm not the biggest fan of what they do and how they do it, uh, but I also recognize the fact that while I am not engaged on their platforms, something like two billion people on the face of this world <laughs> it's, are it's in some capacity. And so, what we've got now is essentially a point where Facebook has become synonymous with the internet. Right? It's kind of the same position that Google is in, and Google is actually Alphabet. Right? That's the name of the company. Uh, but it is just the internet. I mean, it's really difficult to unwind what they've what they've gotten. Together there, and 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 I think honestly, at the end of the day, even with the headlines that uh, Facebook is dealing with right now, we as humans uh, tend to be a forgiving bunch. We tend to look past this stuff after a while. And, and listen, nobody's forcing you to go in there and enter that stuff on Facebook to begin with. It, it seems like people are still going to do it, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp or whatever else. So I think it does eliminate some optionality from Facebook in the future, some different things they might want to try in regard to commerce or payments. So that'll affect growth rates, but it's it's a huge company with a massive user base and a lot of financial resources and a young CEO who still has a lot to, to do. So I think it's very difficult to say that you uh, don't want to be owning a company like that. So does that mean that you Held your nose and ate the cook and ate, your, ate the. I personally don't own Facebook yeah. shares, and I'm not gonna. It's just not a company I'm interested in owning. But uh, we we do own it, million dollar portfolio. We did sell a little bit of our position because we felt like this was a good example of why you don't want to be too uh, heavy in one position. Our Facebook position had grown to a pretty uh, big part of the portfolio. Nice problem to have, but you got to address it. All right. Next question comes to us from Ziv. If I want to compare ETFs and mutual funds in the same asset class, how would I factor in the dividend? Perhaps an ETF earns a better annual return, but the mutual fund generates a much higher dividend despite slightly lower annual growth. Is there a metric that takes into consideration both the annual rate of return and the dividend payout? This is pretty confusing for a novice investor. Well, Ziv is making an important point, and that is the return from a fund, or a stock for that matter, is its change in price plus the dividend paid. And so the metric that takes both of those into account is known as total return. Um, when, the, when you hear about what happened to the Dow or the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ in any given day, you're actually hearing just about the price. And when the Dow goes up 24000 to 26000 it's ignoring the dividend. So it is important to factor in the dividend. If he's looking to compare mutual funds and ETFs, I would go to Morningstar.com, because the performance numbers provided there do factor in the dividend, so you're getting total return numbers, so you can do an apples-to-apples comparison. And Ziv's question actually is related to another question that we got from Don, and he asked, when I hold an ETF, what am I actually holding? When I buy a share of the Vanguard S&P 500 index fund, I know I have a small bit of each of the S&P 500 stocks. Is, the same with the Vanguard? is it the same with the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF? Do I get a dividend? And the answer is yes and yes. In fact, with Vanguard, their index funds and their ETFs are just different share classes of the exact same pot of money. 
So with the S with the Vanguard 500 ETF, as is with any other ETF that tracks the S and P 500, you are still owning a little bit, a little piece of each of those companies, and you do get a dividend. All right. Next question comes from Tony. Too many stocks in too little time. I have about 30 stocks and would love to keep up to date on these businesses. Besides the Motley Fool, what is the single best way to keep on top of these stocks? A publication, website, SEC filing, annual report? Help me prioritize my time. Well, everybody's time is valuable, Tony, and I certainly understand what you mean there. That is a lot of stocks to own and a lot of stocks to keep up with. Now, I mean, you could sort of take this from the Charlie Munger angle, and just, you know, he recommends that really good investing is just buying good companies and sitting on your butt and doing nothing, right? So sometimes it just takes a little bit of faith that you've already got your portfolio set up in the right businesses. But with that said, you still need to be keeping track with what's going on. And whether you want to do that on a quarterly basis, a semi-annual basis or an annual basis. I think you could center it around earnings season, kind of dictate what matters to you most. Perhaps you prioritize the companies in your portfolio that you feel like are a little bit on the riskier side that need a little bit more uh, keeping up with. And then you just pursue keeping up with them via the investor relations sites uh, for those particular companies. Just easy enough as going into Google, you know, putting the name of the company, adding investor relations to it, that'll take you right to the investor relations site, where you'll see earnings reports, usually transcripts, investor presentations. That's going to be probably the easiest way to do it. And dictating it around earnings season uh, means that it's predictable. You know, you're not going to overwhelm yourself with having to do it all the time. And uh, hopefully, that could get you into something where you feel a little bit more comfortable holding that many companies. And we've talked on the show before about how when you buy a stock, you should write a little note to yourself about why you bought it and when yeah. you would sell it and that kind of thing. So probably doing that work ahead of time is also going to make it a lot easier for you to be like, okay, have either of the, you know, does this still hold true why I bought the stock? Does it hold true, you know, when I said I would sell? Yes, no, okay, I'm good. You know, that would probably make it easier to have a checklist. Yeah, an investing journal is, it sounds kind of nerdy, and, and we investors are kind of nerdy, I guess. But an investing <laughs> journal own it. Just own can it. be really, really helpful. And honest, honestly, that's, I think, why I love Twitter so much, is because it's like my own little investing journal that I can pretty much just find what I've been thinking about any company at any given time. And it, it's very helpful. Along with a bunch of sass and gifts. And, and why not? Uh, you know, we, we, we got to keep it real. Right? Jason on Twitter, everybody. <laughs> what are you on Twitter? At TMFJMO. There you go. As easy as that. All right. Next question comes from Josh. I'm 34 years old with a wife and two kids. I'm relocating for work this summer, and based on what I will be able to sell my current house for and what I have saved, I should have about 245000 for a house in the new location. Would I be better off putting all or most of this toward the new house to keep the monthly payments low, or would I be better off only putting down 20% and investing the money that is left over, obviously keeping some in case of emergency? Well, Josh, mortgage rates these days have jumped up to about 4.5%, so higher than they were a couple of years ago, but still historically very low. So, theoretically, if you can invest your money and earn a rate higher than 4.5%, you'd be better off borrowing more and investing more. Of course, there's no guarantees with investing. We've talked before on the show that how most people are not expecting that classic 10% annualized Year from the stock market. Of course, we've been saying that for a couple of years, and the market keeps going <laughs> we've up. We've been saying that since we started the show. <laughs> so keep on saying it, bro. That's right. That's right. So, um, so again, theoretically, you're probably better off investing it for the long term, especially since you're 34 years old. Ideally, this is 
long-term money, maybe for your kids' college educations or something like that. But you go to Wild to ride out any bumps. There is a psychological factor to having less debt. So it, there is this factor between you and your wife about how comfortable you are with having a bigger mortgage. And I would also say, if you put down 20%, look at that monthly payment. Are you comfortable with that monthly payment? Or is that going to stretch your budget? If that's going to stretch your budget, then maybe you should put more money down. All right, next question comes to us from Lorenzo. Should I take profits from my mutual funds now that they're at all-time highs, put the money in cash, and buy more shares when the next bear market occurs? I would still keep making the monthly automatic purchases on all the funds while I wait for the bear to start. So, Lorenzo, far be it from me to tell you when to buy and sell. I like where your head's at here. I mean, you want to you wanna take some profits. Uh, the market is obviously doing very well. Uh, I mean, I think that there's probably a decent chance we may see a pullback at some point or another. The difficult part is telling you when that actually may happen. So, if you decided to do this, I don't think that we could sit there and blame you for that decision, but you have to at least keep in mind that there will likely be tax implications that you want to consider. Uh, you very well could be selling early and miss on uh, future gains, but it sounds like you're countering that by at least continuing the regular investing even after you sell. So I think you're getting a little bit of the best of both worlds there. Not a bad strategy. Again, I think just make sure you take into consideration any potential tax implications that could come from selling, uh, and and then I mean, good luck in trying to figure out when that next bear market occurs. Because, <laughs> like know. we were just saying, it yeah. seems like it's overdue, but that's anyone's guess at this point. I think that's really the most difficult part with questions like these. Is I understand in theory, and it makes sense, but but timing it is far more difficult. And it's one thing to flip a coin and guess whether it's going to be heads or tails. It's another thing to do that consistently and sustainably. And that's why we say market timing is so difficult because you just can't do it on a sustainable basis. And so yeah. just keep that in mind. Yeah, I'll just point out the the first part about that saying that selling now because the mutual funds and and thus the market is at an all time high. Well. The market over the long term just keeps going up and just keeps hitting more all-time highs. So if you sell every time the market hits an all-time high, you're going to be doing an awful lot of selling. Um, so I, as we've talked about in the show before, part of it is when you're going to need the money. If you're getting close to retirement at a time like this, yes, I think it makes more sense to sell some of that rather than if you are like Josh from the previous question and you're in your 30s. We get questions along these lines a lot here, and I, I feel like our answers are always very two-handed, <laughs> where we're like, we acknowledge that a bear market is around the corner, but you can't time the market. Like, right. Oh, maybe you should have more cash, but you can't time. Like, I feel like we always we struggle with this one, because there's no way of knowing. And We, I, we, we in the office talk about this all the time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the, the market's valuation for years has been a concern, and we sit around and talk about, like, well, maybe I should have a little bit more cash. and. And so, everyone out there, even though we've been doing this for years, and in some cases decades, we have the same concerns and same anxieties that a lot of you do. Yeah. Yeah, I was um, reading some history around The Motley Fool, and apparently our board game that we created was called Buy Low, Buy Low, Sell High. Does that sound right? Yes. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. As if it were only that easy. (laughs) Heather, have you played the game? We actually have Heather behind the glass today. Um, I have read the instruction manual. <laughs> and were you like, I can't, I don't, I read the instructions and now I do not want to play this game? No, I do want to play it. I just haven't gone around to it yet. But yeah. Yeah, I have a copy. Yeah. If only it was that easy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. 
Our next question comes from Don. I'm a firefighter who is getting ready to retire in the next year or two. I would like to reallocate a large portion of my IRA into dividend stocks or ETFs to supplement my pension income. Should I just buy a collection of dividend ETFs or portion out my money among the dividend aristocrats? Okay, so let's start with the first question, that is, should I go with mutual funds or individual stocks? Um, Generally, the benefits for picking stocks are that you don't pay the annual expense ratio that you would with a fund. You know what you own. You're picking the companies as opposed to mutual fund. You don't always know what's in there. And you have more control of your taxes because even if you hold on to the mutual fund, if the folks who are also your co-shareholders are doing a lot of selling or the managers are doing a lot of selling buying, you'll have tax consequences. Now, for Don's case, he says he has the money in an IRA, so it's not a concern for him. But it's a concern for other people if this is money outside of an IRA. Now, the benefits of having the fund are that you get professional management, and you get diversification. So, all of that's good. And so, the first thing I would say to say, Don, is it's not either or. You can buy some individual stocks as well as some good dividend ETFs. And we'll talk about those in a little bit. He had mentioned the dividend aristocrats, and there are actually a few flavors of that. So, the original one, or the one that's probably most well known, is basically they're the companies in the SP 500 that have increased their dividend payouts for 25 consecutive years or more. So, they are known for paying out a solid dividend for a long time. You can invest in dividend aristocrats through the ProShares S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats ETF, ticker NOBL. Noble. Very cute. Right. But so, it does have a 0.35 expense ratio. So, that's income you're essentially having to give up to have management of the fund. And its yield is only 1.87%, which is important to think about when you're choosing a dividend-oriented ETF, because just because it has dividend in the name doesn't mean it's necessarily high yielding. That has about the same yield as the S&P, overall S&P 500. Yeah, a lot of those dividend aristocrats actually have a higher yield than that because they've been growing their dividend for so long. Yep. It's kind of odd. Right. Now, there is another one that is the Spider S&P Dividend ETF. This ticker is SDY. This looks at the S&P 1500 composite. So, it's large caps, mid caps, and small caps and chooses the highest yielding among those, also has a 0.35% expense ratio, a slightly higher yield of 2.4%, a little bit over 100 stocks. So, it's pretty well diversified. Um, If you're worried about expenses, obviously, the place to go is Vanguard, and they have a couple of good ETFs. There's the Vanguard High Dividend Yield ETF, just a 0.08 expense ratio, ticker VYM, and its yield is 3%. So that's pretty good for current yield. If you're looking for stocks with a growing dividend, so it's not necessarily high yielding yet, but they're growing quickly, there's the Vanguard Dividend Appreciation ETF, VIG, yield is just 1.87%. So what should you do? Again, I think it's smart to do a little bit of all of them. Um, If you want to do individual stocks, I think that's great. We talk about that all the time here at The Motley Fool. You can pick a few, but I think it's fine to, to have a little bit of your money in these diversified, dividend-oriented ETFs as well. Our next question comes to us from Twitter again, and it is from Namredla5. I'm pretty sure that's not how One of our listeners on Twitter. One of our (laughs) listeners on Twitter. I'm considering consolidating my war on cash basket. Pick one to keep. PayPal, MasterCard, Visa, 
Square. Can you first explain what the war on cash is? Well, Allison, I'm is so that millennials. Glad you asked. And the millennials. It's the millennials again, isn't it? No, man, oh, it is not. They're declaring war on everything. I am not a millennial, and the war on cash basket is actually a basket of four stocks that I put together back in July. Of oh, so this question is very much right at you. This is very much tied to something that that is actually out there. You know, I mean, okay. we, we've got it out there in market foolery uh, almost a year ago. We we put together this war on cash basket, essentially focused on this payment segment of, of the market. Uh, and so, I said that investors could buy, in equal amounts, shares of MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, and Square, and that I felt like that would be a very diversified way to get exposure to a very attractive segment of the market that should offer some attractive returns for many, many years to come. And uh, if we look at it today, interestingly enough, I just tweeted this out earlier, uh, to date, since inception, the war on cash basket is up. Forty-seven point two percent. Not bad. The S and P five hundred over that same period of time, bro. No, any guesses? Nine percent. Very good. Nine point two percent. So I, the war I follow on you cash on Twitter. is <laughs> winning the war against the market. Uh, and and I, I listen, man. I own all four of these stocks too. I think they're great. I don't know why you'd want to get rid of any of them, but if you're if you're going to make me answer the question, then it sounds like that's what I'm here that's for. That's what we brought you here to do. <laughs> um, I, I would go probably with PayPal, I think. not. Po- I definitely would go PayPal. Really? Yeah. And, and, and I think it's for a, a few different reasons. Now, I think that MasterCard and Visa are wonderful businesses. They're big companies. Uh, PayPal has gotten a lot bigger as well. Do you know PayPal's actually bigger than American Express now? Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Pretty fascinating. Uh, but but Mastercard and Visa are going to continue to do really well for a long time. That toll booth sort of model. Square is a little bit more like PayPal in, on the tech side of things. Square is a little bit of a riskier play because it's a younger business, not profitable yet, and still kind of trying to prove itself. But PayPal's kind of right there, sort of in in the middle, and and they've done a lot really to establish this this great business over the course of time. And, and one thing I noticed, we were recently we took the girl down to the Bahamas over spring break. And and one thing I saw was that in a traditionally cash-oriented economy, a lot of merchants down there are starting to just use PayPal. Mm. So, instead of saying, well, I've got this restaurant and I need to get merchant services equipment so I can take credit cards, they'll just open up a PayPal app on the phone and say, well, you can either pay cash or you can pay with PayPal. Because everybody going down there has a phone already. So, we would pay with PayPal. And the neat part about that is you're probably linked to a Visa or MasterCard along the way any Anyway, uh, but I just see a lot of opportunities still for PayPal to grow uh, with a business that's already very well established. So I think if I had to keep one, I'd keep that one. But I am, to be very clear, keeping all four. Yeah, I own two out of four. Well, you know. No, but you're making a compelling case for PayPal. I paid for my tattoo in Malta via PayPal. Tattoo in Malta. You know, I feel like there's a story there. We got to hear (laughs) more about, bro. It's not that good of a story. It's just I was in Malta. Uh, All right, let's move on to the next question. Next question comes to us from Janu. Great to have JMO on the April mailbag. I'll be grateful if he and Bro can dive into their shared passion to get children investing at an early age. More specifically, I'm interested in hearing their perspective on the different account types available to parents who wish to get their kids investing. Lastly, connecting this to your recently published college savings episode, how does the ability to qualify for financial aid affect the decision to open an account in your child's name? So I'll start it just by saying that money in the kid's name in a regular taxable account, like a custodian account, that will count more against financial aid than if the money is in the parent's name. That said, 
if you are listening to this podcast, you're probably not likely to get a lot of financial aid anyhow, so I wouldn't go um, crazy about trying to avoid that. The other options are if your kid has an earned income to open up a retirement account. That would not count against the kid when applying for financial aid. Yeah, I mean, I, I've done this, and, and, and so uh, I, I have accounts for both of our girls. We we have, they each have their own individual account, and it, and it's a custodial account. So just like a savings account at a bank, I mean, it's the same thing. Like right. I'm the custodian, they're the kid, and they get the account when they turn eighteen or twenty one or whatever. Um, and that to me was the simplest way to do it. I think we had. Uh, you know some concerns in in consolidating the accounts from the tax perspective or whatever, uh, so that's why they each have their own individual accounts. And for me personally, I think the question we always get the question. I talked about this at our recent financial health day um, with a group in in that point of like if you have an account for your child and it's a custodial account, it's theirs, and that affects their their financial aid prospects and. Be that as it may, like to me, you're making a bit of a trade-off there. Like, I'm perfectly fine with that. Like, honestly, I don't want my kids to get saddled with like fifty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars in you know student debt if if they can avoid it. Uh, so if if it's going to limit what they can borrow anywhere, I, I don't know that I feel all that badly about that. But for me, for them to have this sort of lifelong experiment of them growing up and seeing how this portfolio works. I think they're going to get a lot out of that, the actual experience, and then being able to look back and recognize the power of time, of compounding, of owning good businesses and just kind of letting it do their thing. Um, so, you have, to make that, you have to make that decision. It's a trade-off there. Uh, for me, it, the, the decision was easy. I mean, I would rather them have their own accountant and be able to learn about investing and, and to be able to take that uh, with them well beyond their educational years. I yeah. imagine there's some um, threshold where if the kid has a hundred bucks in a custodial account, the people over the financial aid people aren't going to be like, "Whoa, they don't get any right." There must be some amount of money where it triggers where the school yeah. is then going to be like. So, I mean, it's not like you have like a million dollars in your no, daughter's custodial yeah, exactly. account. Exactly. I mean, they're they're gonna they're gonna turn eighteen, and those accounts may be worth five or ten thousand dollars, perhaps, maybe more, maybe who knows. Uh, but by the same token, we also did open up 529s for them, like right when they were born. So right. before they even got out of the hospital, those 529 plans were open, um, and so we do uh, have that as well for them. So we're planning, you know, a number of different ways. But I, I think that's the key. Is we talk about it all the time. It's it's really having all of your options available. Have a little bit of a lot of stuff, and uh, you know, you're going to be just fine. Yeah. I mean, you definitely would not want to open an account for your kid and teach them about investing just because you're afraid of reducing your financial aid package. Yeah. Um, another option, just to throw it out there, is the Coverdell Education Savings Account only has a two hundred thousand or two hundred thousand a two thousand dollar annual limit, but that's a good amount for a kid. I think if you're teaching them how to invest. That said, it does have to be used by age thirty, or the money has to be distributed. So it'd be only if you were going to teach your kid about investing, and then plan to use the money for college. Mm-hmm. All right, and our last question comes to us from Amos. Amos writes, "Assuming I have little more than a very basic knowledge about investing, what are some good books I should read to educate myself?" All sorts of good ones. Do you want to start, bro, or is this all me? You can throw out yours. I mean, I'll just mention the ones that I've always mentioned. My favorite is "Stocks of the Long Run" by Jeremy Siegel. Another is "The Little Book of Common Sense Investing" by John Bogle, which was revised just last year, so get the most recent edition. I did a survey of folks in the investing group. This is about three years ago now. Uh, but a couple of books that's, that showed up high on the list was a little book that builds wealth by Pat Dorsey, 
And the most important thing, Uncommon Sense for the Thoughtful Investor by Howard Marks. Well, if it was three years ago, then I participated in that survey, bro, yes, you and did. you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> um, all very good books. I think I've read most of the books that you listed there. I'll go with a couple of extra ones. Um, one that I always point to is Peter Lynch's uh, One Up on Wall Street. Uh, that's just sort of the quintessential sort of foolish mentality. Some of the names in there are perhaps a little bit dated, but the concepts are always uh, yeah, very, the, very, very... Uh, the concepts are good. The book needs a little bit of a... New edition. Yeah, yeah. Well, and speaking of new editions, our our, our uh, investment guide, the Motley Fool investment guide, that oh, we just yes. released a new edition. That's but right. of course, um, by by our founders Tom and David Garter, they uh, really, I think, put together a, a great book that that not only talks about our style of investing, but just really the benefits of investing in general. Pretty pretty inspirational stuff, honestly. And there's one more that I will throw out there. Uh, I believe Robert Hagstrom. Uh, wrote a book called The Warren Buffett Way, yeah. and everybody knows we love Warren Buffett here. This is a book that really just kind of pinpoints the ideas that sort of guide Buffett's investing philosophy. It's it's easy to understand, timeless stuff. Good book. Awesome. Well, that's it for the questions today. How about a disclaimer? That would be great. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about today. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Jason, are you able to do that disclaimer from memory as well? I cannot. I'm still trying to get over this tattoo from Malta, man. I need to learn a little bit more. <laughs> uh, maybe someday. Thanks to Bloom for supporting Motley Fool Answers. If you have a 401k, you know how frustrating it is to decide what to invest in. Now there's a better way to grow your 401k. Bloom, with three O's, is a simple, smart, and affordable way to grow your 401k. Go online to Bloom, and that's again with three O's, so B-L-O-O-O-M-401k.com slash fool, and simply connect your existing 401k in a few easy steps. Then sit back and relax while Bloom performs an unbiased analysis of the funds in your account and chooses the best mix to meet your goals while minimizing hidden investment fees. Pretty cool. And if you want, Bloom can research, invest, manage, and grow your 401k for you while you relax. Bloom can monitor your account and adjust as needed, making sure your funds stay balanced and you keep on track with your goals as you get older. Bloom is so simple. In fact, the hardest part about it is remembering there are three O's in Bloom. Go to bloom401k.com fool and enter promo code fool for your first month free and see the difference Bloom could make in your retirement. Yeah. John from Queens listened to our episode about paying for college, and he wanted to confirm that it's true. Sometimes, if you are from a little-known state, like, say, Idaho or Maine, you can get some pretty decent scholarships at out-of-state colleges because they want to say that they have someone from every student in every state in the United States. So he was actually uh, grew up in Maine but was able to attend Michigan State, and they awarded him a scholarship based solely on where he was from. That's cool. That is cool. Uh, Terrence was happy to hear us mention his alma mater's tradition at Penn of throwing toast. He said, in the American spirit of capitalizing on any and all traditions, you shouldn't be surprised that the home of Wharton School of Business was also home to many people who saw the market for selling pregame bags of toast. (laughs) So, way to go. Sam on Twitter listened to our Luffy's episode and wanted to suggest the Startup Podcast from Gimlet Media as another great podcast our listeners might enjoy. Uh, And he's right. I think I meant to include that in some of the nominees, but I, I didn't. So... 
But now you're making up for now it. Now I'm making up for it. Thanks, Sam. All right, let's head to the postcards. Uh, David went to Morocco, and he remembers that you did some research, bro, where you were comparing the um, prices at Costco, eBay, and Amazon, but he doesn't remember the outcome. Can you take us back? Yes. Well, the, the, the coincidental thing about this is I went back to look up the article, and I actually did this in 2015. I began the article about how I was sitting around talking to a colleague about Costco versus grocery stores versus Amazon, and it occurred to me that that colleague was Jason Moser. Hey! Oh, my God. I can't believe Just yeah. go figure. So, let me just tell you the study, and then J-Mo can weigh in. So, basically, what I did was I chose a sampling of about 30 items that we in the Brocamp household use regularly, like cereal, detergent, pasta, and compared the prices of Costco, Amazon.com, Target, and the local grocery store. And the winner was Costco, by a long shot, offered the best price in all but three of the 30 items. Target came in second with the best price for two and second best for about a third of them. Basically, Costco was about a third less than the normal grocery store. Target was about 10% less. Amazon, so I did it using Amazon Pantry. Amazon came in cheaper than the regular grocery store, but then when I had to figure in shipping, it wasn't that different. This is 2015. I think nowadays, with if I, with using Prime and other ways to cut down on the shipping, I think Amazon would fare a lot better. We may need to revisit that. We might need to revisit it. Plus, it's a lot more convenient, which was the point Jason was making. Yeah, and I think that's what Amazon has done for so many of us. It's essentially given us a new way to value our time. And so that's the thing that's amazing to me is that Amazon, I don't, I don't think any of us really ever contested it was the lowest price. I certainly don't go, you know, I don't use Amazon because I feel like I'm getting the lowest price. And really I do feel like that's where Costco just continues to shine. They they are so so member centric in that regard. But it's the convenience factor. And and I mean like if if you know, we have household, you have kids, dogs, guinea pigs, all sorts of stuff going on. You need toilet paper and paper towels and dog food and pasta and cereal, all this stuff. And and now all of a sudden, if I if I can avoid having to go to the store, I will avoid. Like yeah. I I just don't like going. I mean, I'll stop by the grocery store on the way home from work or something to get something to make for dinner. But generally speaking, when it comes to those staples, those things that are sort of consistent that I know we're going to need, I think that's the benefit I get from Amazon. Is is less about the price, it's more about the convenience. And and when you have a business that is able to grow like that in the face of not having to offer the lowest price in a very competitive retail market. That's kind of impressive. It's not just you that likes them. They just announced their earnings statement or in their earnings report that they're what 100 million prime members around yeah. the world. 100 million paid members around the world. And and that when you think about it, that's not a number they ever released either. Like yeah. we were just kind of forecasting some 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 projections there. And interestingly enough in MDP we had that right at about 100 million. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh. So we're pretty smart over there. Um, but um, Oh, yes you are. Yeah, fascinating business. And, and I mean, I, I let's give Costco the same credit really because these are two member businesses. I mean, that is just a lot of money they're pulling in on an annual basis that they get to use to grow the business. And the retention yeah. rates are really high, which means they're doing something their customers really like. So, I feel like whether you use Costco or Amazon, or whether you're invested in Costco or Amazon, you got to be feeling pretty good about that. Yeah. yeah. One thing that we brought up in our conversation that I put in the article, too, is that not everyone lives close to a Costco, Yeah, and there's traveling involved. One thing I would do if I do this again, and now I'm kind of inspired to, is to compare the prices of Costco.com, because they have a website, too. So they do. 
I don't know. We're yeah, going to have are, to revisit this one. Costco is making a lot of investments in their e-commerce business, trying to figure out new ways to, to get that to get that stuff out to consumers who don't really feel like going. But I tell you what, man, and we don't live that close to a Costco. We're probably about the same one that you're closest to over there off of uh, Ox Road or whatever. But it, it drive by. There's like an airport parking lot. I mean, it's never not full. I mean, I just yeah. Apparently, people like going there. I mean, I would rather. No offense to the dentists out there. I'd rather go to the dentist and have a tooth drilled <laughs> than like go to a Costco. Just I'm not looking to do that. But man, I tell you that that place is always, always busy. Packed. Always yeah. packed. In the words of my dad, all the time, they have the best things at Costco. <laughs> it doesn't matter what is in front of him; he'll tell you about how Costco has a better version. Of well, I feel like you've probably got a couple of minutes here. You bring in Mac, and he can talk about uh, how much he loves the Kirkland brand, right? I oh, mean, really? Sure. Oh. Mac is a big Costco guy. Oh wow! Let's talk to him about that. Uh, Dave also sent a second postcard from Morocco of goats and trees, and his card is just yelling "tree goats." Stocks, and that made me laugh. So, uh, we also got some maple syrup from the Swindells of New Hampshire. I think they tapped it themselves because they sent a picture of tree with maple syrup. So, anyway, we're looking forward to seeing them at Fool Fest. Uh, postcards also came in from Mike, who went to Legoland in Florida, and Don from Effingham, Carolina, and he says the town is just as lovely as it sounds, and he has delightful. Um, serial killer handwriting, which he said, please forgive my serial killer handwriting. I swear I'm a nice guy, but don't serial killers all say that. <laughs> so oh my God. Cracking up at my desk. Somehow he knew I'm a big fan of serial um, killers. my favorite murder and true crime <laughs> stuff. So anyway. All right. Uh, and then we also have Kenneth sent a card from Lapland, north of the Arctic Circle. He promised a picture of himself in a full cap, um, but it never arrived. So mm. that, sometimes people will say that they'll email us and say I sent you X, but I just, somehow it gets lost in the mail. Because I, if you send me something in the mail, I will say your name on the air. So anyway, some stuff just gets lost. It's a big world. I'm sorry, it's sad. All right. Uh, that's the show. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Was it's it too, always a pleasure. Was it too brutal to no have to way, come in man. here and answer I questions? I love coming in here and hanging with you All right. Guys. Well, maybe don't do start with complaining next me. time. Maybe <laughs> let's just start on a positive just, note. My feeble effort at trying to be funny. And oh. <laughs> didn't work out, Now I, I feel bad. No. Oh, man. Uh, I want to thank uh, Heather Horton for pitching in again today behind the glass. Uh, the show will be edited par avionally by Rick Engdahl. And our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.